0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be back after a couple of weeks away. Yeah, welcome back, Claudia. Thank nice you. To be in the studio with us again.
1: <laughs> was that your first getaway since COVID?
0: Uh, I think I got away in the summer for just a few days, but uh, definitely uh, since the years sort of got going, and uh, yeah, definitely since the cold weather started. Yeah, I was sitting um, in this lovely cottage behind the Otways, in uh, just out of Apollo Bay. Yeah beautiful rainforest and uh, no wi-fi for a few days so oh, perfect <laughs> yeah just what you need to switch off proper getaway <laughs> exactly
1: and speaking of cold as well oh jesus cold this morning <laughs> yeah it
2: was rough getting out of bed
0: <laughs> yeah i think we've got the early winter snap to uh, remind us it's definitely autumn yeah, we did start the heating in my house the other day, the first
2: time of the year. So. <laughs> oh, nice. We've,
1: we've got a fire pit out the back and we've been having some great fires oh, uh, great. in the evening.
2: Yeah, my um, housemate has recently uh, sort of made over our backyard and he's building this very good-looking fire pit, so we've had a couple in my place mm. too.
0: I'll have to come over um, to... Uh, your dear. Yeah. <laughs> well,
2: I'm most excited because we also have a functioning indoor fireplace in my house, which I've never lived with before, so I can't wait to um, yeah, oh, awesome. get that going in the dead of winter. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's nothing like a uh, live
1: fire. Yes. <laughs> the only thing that keeps you just as warm is great breakfast content. What do we have on the show this morning?
2: got a jam-packed show. Um, yeah, this morning I am going to be talking to Amanda Porter. Um, so she's a Senior Fellow in Indigenous Programs at the University of Melbourne. Um, and we're going to be talking about the way the media reports on Aboriginal affairs. Um, so this is actually part of some of the recommendations made back 30 years ago this month um, in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Um, a few of the recommendations were around the way the media um, discusses Aboriginal affairs and treats Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, and, yeah, Amanda wrote an article this week for the conversation on just that, so we'll be
0: finding out more.
1: Fantastic. And um, what what will you be talking about, Claudia?
0: Um, well, I've uh, also got a First Nations story. Um, but uh, just before I get on to that, um, just following Ella's uh, interview, um, we'll also this morning be expecting the announcement of the verdict in the George Floyd case in the US. Um, so apparently the jury has re- reached a verdict um, and members of the Congressional Black Caucus are gathering in a room um, to watch the announcement. And, uh, yeah, so we'll bring that to you as soon as uh, we hear. Um, Yeah, so fingers crossed on that one. Um, And then uh, I'll be talking to Kath Koff at 8.15 this morning. She's the coordinator and CEO at the Nolderum Education Aboriginal Corporation, which is an organisation operating in Castlemaine, and uh, they're fundraising to purchase some land, and it's culturally significant land containing a beautiful grandmother tree. So the community is raising money, with crowdfunding, uh, to 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 purchase this land and to be used as a, a meeting place and to, to to build the connection between the local aboriginal community and uh, mother earth so yeah we'll be hearing from her about what's what's going on there and uh, about the tree yeah excellent
1: and later in the show we're also going to talk briefly about uh, vaccinations because today's the day i'm going to get my first shot of the pfizer vaccine oh you got the
2: pfizer did you patty lucky you
1: (laughs) And so, and also, what um, made me want to talk about is there was a lady who called into the Talk Back with Attitude show, Attitude show last week, and she was quite distressed actually about vaccines and stress about blood clotting and stuff. So I thought I better do some research before I put anything in my body. Yeah. And so I'll come to you with the, with the findings from that.
2: Oh, cool. It'd be good to hear that. Yeah, I was um, talking to my mum the other day who got the AstraZeneca. Um, she's in her early 50s, so she just missed the cutoff of getting the Pfizer. Um, and yeah, she was saying she. Um, Had a headache and was pretty achy afterwards, and I think that's pretty common with Mm. AstraZeneca. Definitely. Yeah, my Mm. mum
0: had uh, sort of nausea for a few days after she had it. Um, But I have a cousin who's a dentist in Western Australia who had the visor and she was knocked around. Yeah, she doesn't normally take a day off work, according to mum, (laughs) but um, she was quite sick after the visor. So, uh, okay, so yeah. Watch out, Patty.
1: Uh, Well, maybe to start things off, we could uh, kick it off with a storm. Yep, sounds good. Uh, Here's Field of Dreams by Beaches. This morning for alternative news, we're going to talk about the COVID-19 vaccinations. One of the regular callers of 3CR's talk Back with Attitude program called in last week and she was quite upset about the vaccines. Particularly distressing to her were the cases of blood clotting, which had been linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. She was also concerned that vaccination would be mand- mandatory. If not in a legal sense, at least as a result of the social exclusion experienced by those who decide against taking the vaccine. Well, today is the day I received my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. So I thought I'd better do some research about these vaccines and the concerns about them. The number one concern around vaccination at the moment seems to be on the blood clotting associated with AstraZeneca. But should we be concerned? According to the Professor and Director of Clinical Anatomy at the University of Lancaster, blood clots have appeared at a rate of 1 in every 250,000 AstraZeneca vaccinations. Now compare that to the birth control pill, which causes blood clots at a rate of 1 in every 1,000. And let's compare those statistics to COVID-19 stats in Australia. Of 30,000 infections, 910 people passed away, so that's 1 in every 33 people infected dead. So, even though there have been some blood, there have been some blood clotting occurrences which is perfectly natural to be concerned about, the occurrences are extremely rare. But what about the other side effects of the vaccines? Well, so far, there have been reports similar to the side effects of the flu shot flu-like symptoms, headaches, sight pain, muscle soreness, and fatigue. Assistant Professor Natasha Yates from Bond University points out that these side effects signs that the vaccines are working, training our immune systems to fight the virus. If there are any side effects that I experience after getting the shot, I'll be sure to report back next week. My mum is a nurse, so she's had the jab already, and my dad is in aged care, so he's had his first shot of the vaccine. And despite the Morrison government stepping back from its goal of vaccinating the whole country by the end of the year, it's still important that we all make time to get the vaccine as soon as it becomes available. Because, for instance, I probably don't need the vaccine for myself. If you look at the COVID-19, uh, the way COVID-19 generally affects my age group, I could roll the dice and probably get away with having the vaccine. But I do need to get the vaccine to help protect the vulnerable members of our community, the older people and the immuno, immunocompromised. But we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the vaccine? Text in your thoughts to 0488 That's 0488
3: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
1: And now uh, we're just waiting on the uh, results of the George Floyd case in America. Um, Has there been any further developments there?
0: Yes, uh, the results have just come through and Derek Chauvin has been found guilty of second-degree manslaughter and third-degree murder. Um, That's an unintentional murder and he has been uh, handcuffed and taken away out of the courtroom and um, remanded in the custody of the county sheriff and we haven't received any... uh, Responses yet from uh, the community around the courtroom or the um, the family of Chauvin since the announcement, and uh, but we will bring you those uh, as they come in. Wow. Yeah. So, Derek Chauvin found guilty of George Floyd's murder. Yeah, live as we uh, as we speak in the US, Minneapolis.
1: I'm sure that story will continue to develop throughout the day.
0: Yeah, big news.
1: Uh, maybe to follow up on that. Uh, no, we have um, we have April Day uh, from the Black Deaths in Custody Rally with the demands of the family of the uh, federal government.
2: Demands. I'll introduce I'll April. <laughs> she will read out the demands of the families.
3: Thank you. These demands have been worked on by the 15 families and together we have put these together and uh, putting this to the governments. Number one, governments need to fully implement all recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody while involving and listening to our families. Two. We need an independent investigative body to inquire into all deaths in custody. Police must not investigate other police officers or prison officers. (laughs) Number three, governments need to reallocate public funding away from punitive policing and expansion of prisons and invest into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander led grassroots solutions. We know what works for our communities. Allow all of our people in police cells access to custody notification services without delay. And the physical restraint, abuse and torture, including spit hooding and solitary confinement of all people in police and prisons. Number six. Families deserve to know if their loved ones died in custody and that they will be heard, that there will be a timely, thorough and independent investigation and they deserve to be present at any public investigation of their loved one's death. This includes being provided with the means to attend all hearings. Families also deserve to know that their loved one's body is being treated in a respectful and cultural manner. Number seven, reduce imprisonment of our peoples by repealing punitive bail laws, mandatory sentencing, and decriminalizing public drunkenness. And to note that the Victorian government has made a commitment to the abolition of public drunkenness, but that is still 24 months away. So Aboriginal people are still at risk of dying in custody. Shame. Number eight, commit to raising the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14 years. And have a minimum age of detention of 16. Our babies do not belong in prison. Number nine, We want governments to implement decarceration strategies including ending imprisonment of our mob who aren't sentenced, access to income support, ending homelessness, justice reinvestment and Aboriginal-led solutions. And number 10, we need federal funding for policing and prisons to be repurposed to meet the needs of our communities. That is a shorter version of our demands, but you can find uh, the full demands on the NATSIL's website. Thank
1: you. That was April Day speaking at the black, black Deaths in Custody Rally. Uh, next up, we're going to hear an interview from Evelyn Ireland that was on Breakfast uh, back in March. A very interesting in- interview about her book of poetry, Drop Bear, but first up he is Better Things by Kian. <laughs>
4: i blue
5: Listening to
6: 3CR radio. Evelyn Araluan is a poet, researcher and co-editor of the Overland Literary Journal. She has been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize and a Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship. Evelyn was born and raised on Darug country and she descends from the Bundjalung Nation. This morning she joins 3CR Breakfast to speak about her new collection of poetry, Drop Bear. Welcome Evelyn and thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So, your collection is titled Drop Bear, and I personally really admire your subtle humour in your collection amidst uh, reckoning with really violent topics like imperialism and colonisation. And you have a poem in the anthology titled Drop Bear Poetics, where you draw on fictional colonial characters like Blinky Bill, and you beautifully weave in conceptions of Indigenous sovereignty against white settler nationalism – so I'm interested in what you, uh, drew you to Drop Bear for the title of your collection.
7: Yeah, um, and thank you for those very beautiful comments. Um, so I'm not entirely sure about where exactly the language of like, Drop Bear specifically entered all of my thinking about this project, but it was like really, really early along. The poem Drop Bear Poetics is, is one that I wrote a couple of years ago before I really thought about like a longer collection around these ideas. Um, and it just struck me the whole time that there is just this strange um, crypto-mythology around the ways in which settler-colonial Australia approaches its own ideas of, like, haunting and ghostliness. And mm. so the drop there is this weird in-between idea of something that is simultaneously assumed to be native, even though we actually, like, there's no Aboriginal stories of drop bears or anything of the like, but is also so international in the way that we kind of use this idea of the drop bear, this joke of the drop bear, to terrorise tourists and, and people who are, you know, overseas and hearing strange stories about terrifying Australia. So, I don't know, I just, I was drawn to the notion of something that is, liminal and between and ultimately functions as a way of kind of terrorising people. Um, So that was a weird kind of avatar for me and for any kind of idea of haunting throughout the book.
6: Mm, Which, yeah, you definitely draw on quite a lot um, in your collection you clearly love birds. Um, your poems have dotted throughout them. Wattlebirds, currawongs, magpies, lyrebirds, kookaburras. Um, where does your love from of birds come from?
7: So that is, like, thank you for asking me that question because that's a very attentive and lovely question to ask. Um, I, uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time around people who have incredibly special relationships with birds. And, you know, when you're an Aboriginal person, you're always raised knowing that, like, birds have this very close communication and relationship with spirits and ancestors and you have, like, a very subtle respect for that Um and you learn, like, different roles of birds. But, um yeah, for me, like, I don't know, I've just, I've always loved the different ways in which there seem to be so many stories and personal feelings that people have about birds. Like, some of the earliest dreaming stories I can remember being told were about, like, the bird and about how... You know why some birds are black and why some birds got their colours, and um, you know throughout my life I've just I've just met people, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, who have just had such deep and tender relationships with those you know with with birds and different birds in specific. So I really enjoyed I, I love writing about what other people love and and my love of those people through those things. So that be, did become like a bit of a running scene throughout. But um yeah, I, I was I had no idea anybody picked that up, so thank you. That's very exciting to me.
6: <laughs> yeah, actually speaking of birds, my because I'm Wangi and Chinese, so my family come from the Gulf country. Um oh, beautiful. and Yeah, just thinking about it, yeah, now my great great grandmother, her name is Minnie ba- Bi and so My means um, black red crested cockatoo. Um ah, yeah
8: <laughs> they're beautiful they are such beautiful
7: birds, and again, like there's like really special and intimate relationships with ancestors and country and stuff and like particularly black cockatoos, they're just like haunting and gorgeous and it's so interesting to see the way that like settler colonists were were also like struck by these amazing creatures too, so like going back into journals. I'm weirdly resentful that they have this love as well, but it's so fascinating to read that there's like over 200 years of that kind of um, that kind of interest, even from the settler colonists and from all of these different voices that you don't always expect to be paying attention to the land in any regard. They're just kind of there to use it,
6: mm, mm. Um, and. In your collection, there's a real sense of reckoning with the present reality. Um, My favourite poem is Playing in the Pastoral. And I think there's this mantra and an ethos in Australia that pastoralists are farmers and that farmers in this country are always struggling and they're doing it tough. And, you know, they're really benefiting the Australian citizen. Um, And so, yeah, I guess, like how through your poetry do you try and grapple with the settler violence of pastoralism?
7: yeah that's another thing that um you know like so much of this collection is propelled by an attempt to give nuance to things that i um i either i love or i hate or I have like a incredibly problematic relationship with so I do attempt to confront things no matter how complex they might be so like I'm very open about the you know i i, I live with my grandparents for a time on on their farm and it's it's something that i have a really intimate kind of nostalgic memory for but living there like i knew how violent and awful pastoralism is for our landscape um you know like hooves in particular just like so destructive for our soil and there's a really long history of that in the region that i grew up in the hawkesbury and the damage that the pastoral industry has done um so I try to acknowledge. I do try to acknowledge that um, pastoralism will never be, um, uh, will never be able to be involved in the decolonisation um, of mm. the Australian landscape. Alongside recognising that it is sad to see an area that you know you've grown up with or that you have a lot of um, love for, that connect- you have connections with, it is pretty sad to see it go from pastoralism to like suburbia,
8: mm. knowing
7: that they're both destructive forces, knowing that they're both, you know, really bad for the environment, but that you you still mourn the loss of something that you've known and that you've loved. Um, so I just try to be honest about the um, I try to be honest about the fact that I do have personal feelings tangled up in really awful, harsh, um, harsh ways of Mistreating the landscape, and um, I think that's important. Like, I think we do have to be vulnerable about the different ways in which, you know, we are implicit in different problematics.
8: Mm.
6: Um, And now to another aspect of your collection. A number of the poems take on academic or institutional conventions. For example, Appendix Australis or Acknowledgement of Country, um, which is spelled C-U-N-T-E-R-Y. And they're really different examples, but what does adopting this type of language allow you to do? Uh,
7: So I did did use... uh bit of conceptual and academic language throughout the collection quite intentionally. Um, but then also in moments it crept in because I've, you know, I've been doing a PhD for forever and mm. like, I'm also a researcher and a teacher and, um, I'm always just so struck about struck on the ways that academic language is used to kind of legitimate or delegitimize knowledge. And I definitely had like this really petulant feeling throughout the book, um, that I could say what I wanted to say poetically, I could say it honestly and from the heart and I could say it informed by storytelling, by elders, by culture, and they still wouldn't listen. And so a big part of um, my attempt to kind of use some of that language in those structures was to kind of ironize and undermine their validity and demonstrate that um, they aren't the authority. That's not the authoritative way to convey mm. information. Um, it's just the way that we are accustomed to um, structuring different arguments that are ultimately usually there to kind of speak over other people who don't have access to those systems and structures. So really badly misusing them throughout the collection is my subtle attempt to <laughs> undermine those
6: things.
7: Hopefully get revenge for myself. <laughs> Fool, was trying
6: to do a PhD <laughs> <laughs> um, and Evelyn, I was wondering if you would like to share a poem on air for listeners
7: yeah um, well I might I might read Drop air Poetics just because it was the first one you mentioned and I think it's probably it probably summarizes the collection best so um, yeah so this one is drop air Poetics. tidlic say I'm such great sir. I will drain the land and drag my big fat belly across the empty sea. Banyap say, I'm going to gobble you up if you step borders where I sleep. And with wet claws, I will snatch your spine and ankles to fill them with stain and stench. What the Mopokes say don't need saying if you've grown up under his eyes. Now here's the part you write Black Snake down for a dilly of national flair. True God, you don't know how wild I'm going to be to every fucking postmod blinky bill trying to crack open my country, mining in metaphors that place you felt felt you, somewhere in the Royal National. Wagen says he's heart, but I am rage and dreaming of the gloss green palm fronds of this gentry is set antique, all this pot planting and our sovereignty, a garden for you to swallow speak our blood. If you're talking that talk, you've got to scrape it from my schoolhouse walls. Filter gollywog ashtray snuggle pot kitchen to your pastoral deconstruct. Fill four and twenty pies with artisan magpies. If you sever their heads, you can wear them to the doof. I say rage and dreaming for making liar the liar bird, for making my medic the power by army gave when ribbon's mischief swallowed first life. Ochre dust Creation breath, ancestor song. We aren't here to hear you poem. You do wrong, you get wrong, you get gobbled up.
6: Thank you so much for sharing that, Evelyn.
7: Thank you so much for having me on. It's so lovely to talk to the collect about the collection. Somebody <laughs> read it and thought things back.
6: <laughs> and how can listeners um, get a copy of Drop Bear?
9: Uh, so
7: DropBears, I think for sale in pretty much all bookshops at the moment around Melbourne, um, but I would really encourage people to shop locally at their independent booksellers because that's they've all taken a hit throughout COVID. Um, so if you even if you can't get a copy through them uh, specifically, maybe ask if they'd like to order or if they have a website, order through that. And failing that... Um booktopia uh, is a really good um, bookseller online bookseller that supports independent sellers and supports the Australian publishing industry
6: fantastic and also how can listeners um stay up to date with your work
7: uh well really the most the best thing to do is to just follow me on Twitter or check out my Twitter account, which is at Evelyn Ar but fair warning, I do occasionally you know get a I go on some rants at like three, (laughs) about once a month. So just mute me on that occasion and and then check me out for anything else at the
8: time.
6: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Evelyn, for joining us this morning on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Really lovely. Evelyn Aralouin, who is a poet, researcher and co-editor of the Overland Literary Journal. And she joined us on 3CR to speak about her debut collection of poetry, Drop Bear.
3: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
1: That's right, you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. And we've got a couple of responses on our text line. Uh, your thoughts on the vaccinations. Uh, I was just updated. So one of them was uh, that I agree with Patty, which I I always enjoy those kind of texts. Uh, The vaccine isn't for the individual, but for the community. The side effects are statistically insignificant. The pill is so widely taken with higher blood clot risk. Um, But I will have to scroll back and read that other text message because uh, it was sort of discussing the the effects of the blood clots of the pill compared to AstraZeneca being AstraZeneca's um, higher risk of mortality, I think.
2: Okay, yeah, that's something I'm really interested um, to talk about and I think, yeah, um, this should be, as someone who's uh, yeah really interested in women's health, in particular the um, effects of birth control, when stuff like this comes up it always almost frustrates me because, yeah, the pill has huge rates of blood clots and a lot of women die from that every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what it is statistically or per head, but I know, yeah, hundreds of women certainly, like in the UK and America, um, die from blood clots directly related to the pill um, and we don't hear a lot about that. Um, whereas something like a vaccine, which is obviously, yeah, um, hugely important, um, the rates are much lower and it doesn't get the same attention.
1: And we have a, another text message just coming from uh, Elvira from Turak. I'm just a layperson, so I follow the medical expert's advice. The risk of blood clots is negligible compared to the prospect of COVID-19. Get the jab. So I think there's a lot of uh, support for the vaccine, but it's also uh, important to admit, you know, there's there's good reason to be. Aff- I'm even afraid of needles. I know when I'm going to get my vaccine today, I have to take a seat. I'm too afraid that I'll faint. But um, no, it is. Uh, I like that saying that Amy Goodman says on Democracy Now that wearing wearing a mask is an act of love, and I think getting the vaccine is an act of love too. <laughs> um, and we have one more text uh, saying, "Great so- show so far." Very powerful hearing from April. That was the um, speech April gave at the Black Deaths in Custody rally. And if you wanted to follow up on um, the petition that she was speaking about at the end of that speech, uh, you can sign the petition calling on the Prime Minister to meet with the families whose loved ones have died in custody for, 30, for, the, for the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission at www.natsils.org.au slash Matter. Um, Claudia, is there any further updates about the George Floyd case?
0: Thanks, Paddy. Yes, so as we said before, Derek Chauvin has been found guilty of all counts of uh, murder and manslaughter charges in the death of George Floyd. Um, So the responses are just coming out now. Um, Some of the political responses, Bernie Sanders, uh, the jury's verdict delivers accountability for Derek Chauvin but not justice for George Floyd. Um, Nancy Pelosi said she spoke to George Floyd's family earlier today and thanked them for their grace and dignity. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. Your name will always be synonymous with justice. Biden says I think it's overwhelming um, and the National Guard is uh, on uh Stand by to assist the police in event of protests, um, and just trying to pick up something from the family. No doubt they're uh, overwhelmed with uh, both emotion and uh, a, a huge range of uh, feelings and responses. So he'll face up to 40 years uh, prison, although he's likely to receive a shorter sentence according to legal guidelines. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll see a, a huge reinvigoration of the Black Lives Matter movement um, following this uh, result.
1: Uh, and if you'd like to text in your thoughts about uh, or your reactions to the conviction, uh, the text line number is 0488 That's 0488 And here is I Smell Trouble by Paul Kelly.
2: As we've discussed on the show this morning, uh, this month marks 30 years since the final report of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, uh, in which 339 recommendations were made. Um, And a heads up to listeners, the following discussion will most likely contain names of deceased Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, Since the Royal Commission's final report, there have been 474 deaths, described as a national shame by Pat Dodson one of the royal commissioners at the time, and a current Labour senator. Five of these deaths have occurred since the beginning of March this year. So there are clearly a number of areas which still need to be addressed. And one of these is the way in which the media reports on Aboriginal affairs and Aboriginal deaths in custody. So joining us this morning to discuss this is Amanda Porter, a senior fellow in Indigenous programs at the Melbourne Law School, where she teaches and researches deaths in custody. Amanda recently wrote an article for The Conversation entitled, Not Criminals or Passive Victims, The Media Need to Reframe Their Representation of Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Uh, good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Amanda.
11: Hi, Elle, It's a pleasure to be on the show.
2: Thanks for waking up nice and early on a Wednesday for us. We appreciate it.
11: No, it's always good to support um, local radio and the work of 3CR and the people that are getting the framing right.
2: Ah, glad to hear it. <laughs> And um, yeah, now, as you write, um, the Australian media tends to not afford Aboriginal people the same nuances uh, we see with um, non-Aboriginal people. Um, They're often presented as criminals or passive victims. Um, So can you talk a little about the ways in which Aboriginal affairs are discussed in the media?
11: Yeah, well, I think for me, um, you know, we saw a perfect example of that last week. And just before I begin, I just want to acknowledge that I'm uh, calling in from Melbourne, um, here locally, and I want to acknowledge um, elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, um, and acknowledge in particular um, the work of the Day family, um, local organisations like Dura, and um, other um, Aboriginal organisations like War that have been, you know, doing such a significant job in um, leading this um, fight to end black deaths in custody, and you know, in particular. Um, you know I've seen this um I've only been in town for a month but I've just been um you know the, the last week um we've just seen you know you, there's just two different worlds as far as I'm concerned there was a an a national day of action here in Nam a rally that was um, impeccably organised, and um, by by the warriors of Aboriginal resistance, um, there were there was not one arrest. It was um, really, um, you know, there were there were marshals um, ensuring people's safety and um, compliance with COVID and so on. Um, and the purpose of the rally was to was a national coordinated um, day of action to as a wake up call for Australia. Um, and sadly, um, you know, that was last not not last Saturday, but the Saturday before last and for me um the most distressing thing about the last week was that you know i was really expecting to see a week with deaths in custody contemporary issues you know front and center i wanted you know i was expecting naively to see um you know information on um you know the dadgawa foundation and the work they're doing to decriminalize public drunkenness here in the state you know that's a perfect example of a royal commission that was, you know, um, you know there were there were clear recommendations made about the urgent need to decriminalise public drunkenness in the late 1980s, and in the interim report to the royal commission and and in the recommendations, and you know we've seen nothing but inaction, successive inaction, and you know talking big and doing nothing um, by successive state and um, Commonwealth governments, and um, you know the the people that have been. Working to do that, I think you know it's inexcusable that that falls on the on the you know the back and the you know and the the work of of, of bereaved families themselves. And yet they were completely missing from the media, um, mainstream media, I should say, portrayal last week. Um, it was just um, uh, I thought quite sickening that um, you know there wasn't you know, and it's not even you know the, the main. The article that I wrote um, with Eddie, my um, colleague and Associate Dean at the Law School, Eddie Cabillo, um we were, you know, trying to write about these concerns in the, the framing of, of articles by the mainstream media um, and, you know, the need to, you know, I think it's important to remember that um, the Royal Commission was, you know, written for the Australian public. It was written for Australians. Um, was paid for by, um, you know, Australian taxpayers, and there were actually, um, you know, the, the the point that we were keen to to emphasise was that there were a number of recommendations, two oh five to two oh eight, among others, um, in the among the three hundred and thirty nine recommendations of Dick, um which actually, you know, they they were addressed um, not to you know public officials or government leaders, but they were addressed to the media. Um, and those recommendations like clearly say that you know talk about the ethical and moral responsibility of editors of publishers of journalists um, to not perpetuate racist stereotypes and you know it's largely um off the back of that that we saw the you know birth of NITV and 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 um you know the um a, a, you know um for one of a better word a you know renaissance of indigenous media but um it's just um you know you know deeply sad and i think sickening to see um racist stereotypes and myths and misinformation kind of just um and just spin and um you know crap really um you know but um you know some um, what more i guess could you expect from you know um the corporate australian media um but yeah that was um that was the, the gist of the article um, and it's out on the conversation for those that want to read it, but um, that, was, uh, that, that was the concern was that, that there were clear recommendations there about um, journalistic standards um, and, and ethical and responsible journalism and news reporting on Aboriginal deaths in custody
2: yeah and one of the um, myths you address in the article is this argument we hear a lot that um, many Aboriginal deaths are ruled to be of natural causes. Um, can you set yeah. that one straight for us?
11: Um, well I mean it's you know sad to see that that this myth is perpetuated in the mainstream media because it 's just the spin that you see um, from corrective services, legal counsel and police um, um, Council. so you know anytime there is a death in custody um for those who um have had, had the unfortunate um you know un- unfortunate scenario of having to actually sit through the coronial inquest process but it really is just a display of industries here so you know you have some of the um most well-resourced um industries uh, unions the police union um in particular um that has you know um Deep pockets, and will you know pay for you know QCs and you know the best legal representation money can buy. And one of the you know common uh, spins that they'll put on the legal argument, whether it's here. Um, and this is just something that's you know I want to shout out in particular to Goulmurey academic Alison, Doctor uh, Alison Wibica, who has um, researched the language used um, and these kind of arguments used in coronial inquests at in great length. Um, but it's something that. That's done um, internationally. So even in um, the trial of um, Derek Chauvin, which I, I confess I haven't—I've been so busy in the last few days I haven't followed it. But that was, of course, wheeled out by the defence the the de- team um, to, to um, the, the police officer there. And I think, you know, um, I don't believe that. You know, it's, I think that the proof is there for the world to see. You know, you can see that footage of um, a, a Chauvin putting his knee on the neck of George Floyd, and you can see that footage. It goes for seven minutes. Um, and... <clears throat> but yet the the defence team in that case argued that... Um, um, George Floyd didn't die because a police officer applied lethal force to his neck and and stopped him from being able to breathe, and he did that for seven minutes. But the defence team said that 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 happened because he had some pre-existing medical condition, which, um, you know, which... And that wouldn't have happened if, if, um, you know, if if he was white. And I think, you know, I I don't believe people are so naive. I think people can see through this um, bullshit, sorry, Um, but... uh, yeah and
2: and it's something, yeah, it kind of um beggars' belief that they would even make this argument um that it was of natural causes when we've all seen the video um and I think yeah. with this kind of thing, as you s- said, you may be able to um find loopholes or work your way around in an argument with um one death, but when you zoom out, I don't think you can really argue with the facts
11: yeah and Sorry, I got distracted. My alarm's going off. But um, Mm -hmm. there is... um, I just wanted to make the point that this is um, a very, um, you know, run-of-the-mill argument that's run regularly by corrective services and police um, unions around, you know, here and and internationally. So we've seen that also with the death in custody of Nathan Reynolds um, and the death in custody of Wayne Morrison. that in both cases um, this case was run. We see it run, you know, Aboriginal people know that this um is, is 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 this this poxy defence is, is run out all the time um in, in relation to um you know any any death of, of a of a black person.
2: <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And another one we often hear is um this argument that Aboriginal people don't die at high rates in prison. It's just that more Aboriginal people are in jail. Um as if this somehow nullifies the argument when mm. isn't this exactly the argument people are making Aboriginal people yeah. are incarcerated at extremely high rates and extremely disproportionate rates and that's the problem that's what puts people at risk
11: exactly and the royal commission made that statement loud and clear and it's fairly uncontroversial um and i think most common sense as well for most people who've been to a prison or know someone who's been to a prison that prisons are violent um places and um you know that that um um, and um, But the problem uh, that was identified in the Royal Commission was that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are more likely to be um, have a higher incarceration rate. So they're more likely to be um, targeted, harassed and um, arrested or, or the subject of um, lethal police violence. Yeah,
2: yeah absolutely. Um, and you spoke about some of the measures that were put into place after the recommendations um, way back in 1991, um, such as NITV. Um, did we yep. see any other kind of action to actually um, put these recommendations into place?
11: Yeah, I mean, look, I just wanted to emphasise there um, that, you know, as we've sadly is the case with the work to um, decriminalise the offence of public drunkenness, which again was a clear and, you know, clearly stated recommendation of the interim report and the final recommendations, it's again, it's all is, was, and always will be, was, and, and is now. Um, Hopefully not 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 forever. Hopefully something's going to give here. But um, it, I just it just want to emphasise that it has been the work of Aboriginal um, families and Aboriginal communities that have been that have driven this. So that was a recommendation of there, there were several recommendations about the need for um, uh, you know. Um, aboriginal representation in news media to get the framing right and not to dwell on you know not to perpetuate racist prejudice racial prejudice racist stereotypes and deficit de- discourses and deficit discourses is just you know um all you see these days um i think i mean well not all you see but i um, mean it is a problem both in the media and in um education and everywhere um but um uh, at the point I was, sorry i 'm running around a here, but the point i 'm trying to make is just that, as with um, that, that with everything it 's um the work that 's done by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to implement these recommendations, so you know NITV didn't come about um, you know because government said, "Oh, we should get, invest in black media. It came about because of the work of um, Pauline Clegg and Larissa Brent and so many other. Um, Aboriginal uh, leaders um, that, that, that that put that together um, because they could see... And, and that's, you know, still the case today. I mean, shout-out, for example, to um, podcast, um, the podcast Curtain run by Amy McGuire and Martin Hod- Hodgson and shout-out to um, uh, Bo Spearham, who's, who's um, Bo Knows kind of um, podcast on... Um, you know, the long legacy and an ongoing legacy of of frontier wars and and the colonial violence um, of policing institutions here. So, you know, that that there's, um, you know, the people that are getting the framing right and where you can read, um, um, you know, the raw truth of of the matter is um, Aboriginal journalism. And and, uh, I think, you know, in particular this week having, you know, for those of us that are um i think um you know like myself that just um was so you know distressed and saddened by what happened last week in the media and the media's deficit you know lens on all of this i think it's really important right now to, to think about what we can do to invest in, in and support um you know um aboriginal journalism and um and aboriginal news reporting on these topics
2: yeah absolutely all right. And I think that's all we've got time for this morning. But thanks so much for joining us, Amanda. That was great.
11: Thanks, Ella. Take care. Have Take a nice care.
2: day. You too. Bye. And now we're going to listen to Survive from Dreaming Now.
12: Tungul <laughs> descended from secret obligations, we still stand by those, as we dream in the now. Born into where the slow is open. slippery. Check history, man. Spin, no mystery. Stolen removed. Indigenous deep space power before understanding and humility. All with artillery, hostilities, spray upon to the cages. Now realize I the wrong credit songs who diever by celebrating strong. celebrating eminent and shaker you don't it. In the lands, wisdom we do belong. These words are seeds that these could never take from Ow, mother's wound prison, always beyond apocalypse. is wrong, so don't extend strong. Roman restriction, Trapped tempt missions, the colonial system assimilation, prescription. Spirit never trap, we always hear glisten ancestors. Wisdom forevermore given, you Yes, we would always survive. No matter what they do, do we never gon' go die. Yes, we would always survive. 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 No matter what they do, do we never gon' go die. Yes, we would always survive. Yes, we would always survive. Four, seven, eight, eight. There was nothing but black. There was magic manifested in stacks. Till the gun barrel tried to bring on genocidal collapse. But now, two hundred plus years have elapsed. Conquest didn't work. in new tracks. Packed with the painted generations' impact. Put it back to these constant hideous attacks. But yet we stand strong, inspired of all of that. Quicksand snakes and spider's Yes, Those are vibrant. With a palette of strong, masters colliding. The richer we got it through the sand. And that silence, a and We created, this vibrant. Turned out the color through the balance, imbalance. We're family, and you was a black pearl, rising. It's a black pearl, rising. Yeah, we're always surviving. Ooh, yes, we no always survive here Yes, we will always
8: survive
12: No matter what they do, yeah, do we never gon' die, die. Yes, we no yes, we yes, go yes, we will always <azul Holboxy> yes, survive no Yes we will no always survive yeah, we'll Yes but we will always survive Yes we will always survive No matter what they do, we never gon' die Yes we will always survive Yes we would love survive Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year, and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member, become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website, 3cr.org.au, or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio.
3: So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria. Not the one you see in Queensland not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality and a treaty means justice. Thank you.
1: listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR and uh, just continuing with our text messages about the COVID vaccinations, uh, we had an interesting text from Karina. Uh, She writes, might have been the conversation with an interesting piece on why the comparison between contraceptive and AstraZeneca clots may not be so helpful. In short, AstraZeneca clots in the brain have had 25% mortality. Contraceptive clots have less risk but are cumulative over time, while it's not the cleanest comparison, I'm pretty into the conversations data about informed consent with contraceptive medicine, medicines, medications, etc. So it is interesting. You know, there are no easy comparisons. So, and uh, I thank uh, I thank our listeners for all our all the texts on that matter. Um, and I'm looking forward to my vaccination today. Uh, we've still got some show left. It's eight o six in the morning. Uh it's about gonna be a top of fifteen degrees today. Uh and here is Jewel Thief by Adelita. <laughs>
10: There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au.
0: Okay, next up we have Yorta Yorta woman, Catherine Koff, to speak with us. Catherine is living on Jarrah Country up in Castle, Maine, and she's the CEO of Noldoran, which is an Aboriginal collective running education programs uh, in Castlemaine and the local area. And Catherine is here to talk to us this morning about a fundraising campaign that the corporation's engaged in at the moment to try and buy a special piece of land near Castlemaine and the land contains a very special tree, the Miman Duk Gilk Grandmother Tree. Welcome, Catherine, and thanks for coming on the show.
9: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So before we start to learn about the tree and this process that you're going through to raise money to buy some land uh, for your community. Can you first tell us about the Naldurum Education Aboriginal Corporation?
9: Yeah, sure. So we're a little corporation. Um, We started out when we um, realised that we um, needed to do something about um, supporting our children through the education system. Um, So we... um, we meaning the elders and Aboriginal people within this area. Um, so so we're a lot, there's a lot of registered teachers. I'm still a registered teacher myself. Um, we The meeting place Aunty Julie started up about 11 years ago um, where we take our children out of mainstream school and to another setting and um, teach them about um, the culture through culture and country through the and the curriculums in that way out at um at the meeting place. Um and then from since from that on, then on we have been doing other programs. We have a youth a major youth leadership program which is run by our youth. Um, we go into schools to support teachers in running curriculum and support our children trying to get through the system. We have Cooley business which Uncle Rick runs and, and um we have Tita business, and we have. There's a quieter. Um, we have a bus which doesn't just take our kids to school, but other kids. And um, so we're we're not. Um, I suppose the difference is we're not a major health organisation. We're not. We're not a native title corporation. We get very little funding. I've only just started drawing a wage as the even the CEO. Um, that's how little we are. Um, before we've been doing a lot of this voluntarily. So because lot of people. Um, or going, Gosh, why did you go for grants for this and that? And we're like, we just we we're a small, very small sort of very grassroots organisation
0: ourselves. But you're doing a huge amount of work. I mean, reading your website, the 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 range of programs that you're running and the impact that uh, you've been having on the 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 different um, community members um, seems to be enormous. Oh, thank you. I
9: think it. Um we we when we started we have very key um ideals and, and they were also passed on from Uncle Brian, Uncle Rick's father in regards to um, you know, you know, generosity, doing things with an open heart, um, being inclusive with our allies, um and and it's through, you know, sharing and loving in a way. So we yeah, we do um uh, what to solve one fund person said you punch way above the weight in regards to success but simply I think what we do is we they try to assume or guess what our community needs our community tells us um and they are also we are very much aboriginal run and led um, most of our staff are Aboriginal and part of the community that we live in um and I, I really think that is what why it works is is actually we we are we have purposely structured it in a different way than perhaps in a lot of non-indigenous organizations we're choosing to do it the way that we know that works for our community and for the wider community so we do bring a lot of the wider community and have huge amounts of partnerships um, with other uh, non-indigenous organizations in our area but also even in in the wider victoria area as well
0: and it was interesting reading about um, the closing the gap policy in the context of the work that you're doing. And the point was made in, I think it was in your evaluation report from a couple of years back, that it's actually grassroots organisations like, like the one that you're running who are actually doing a lot of the meaningful work to close the gap in local communities.
9: Yeah, I uh, but I just said... It's really interesting the word "closing the gap" because we we actually don't even use that word in the community with our children because that that often means a negative connotation, yeah. and a lot of our a lot of our kids are like are, even can start to identify them because they're well aware of what that means. That it means that there's a gap between non-indigenous um, students and themselves. So because we we don't see that the issue is a vertical. Um, Difference is actually a horizontal in how we see the world Um, and we, to be honest, a lot of my role is working really hard and I know a lot of um, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are in a similar situation to me, it's a really hard space to be in that cultural interface space, so it's constantly advocating um, and sort of feel like you're living between worlds really, um, that we think the system needs to change. So um, that's why we're going into the schools, that's why we're supporting teachers, um, because we, don't, we actually think we're pretty awesome, and, and, we, and we have a huge amount to offer, and we love the way we see the world and how we live, but often, but often we're seen as the disadvantage of the minority group, but we realize, sort of push back and go, no, I actually think it's the system that needs changing, we should no longer be invisible in this system.
0: And it's the settler community who needs the education to close their gap in um, ignorance. Yeah, I guess that relates to what our previous guest was saying about a deficit discourse, which we hear a lot.
9: Um, I'm actually currently doing my PhD in this space too because it's really, um, it's it's changing that. And we we have a lot of allies that come in, they have to do training before they work with us in regards to um, decolonising, I suppose, their way of thinking, um, even understanding their own privilege before they come. And it, I have seen this time and time again when people, are it finally is like, oh my gosh, this light bulb moment in their head, in their spirit or their heart when they realise that, why on earth when we taught that it's at school, um, why why is this a system, like a, a, this other system has come and landed itself on country and felt that it is the way it should be when there is a perfectly amazing way of living on this country and seeing this country and experiencing it that... Um, you know why was this other system come over, and why were we never taught about this at school? You know, we have I have a lot of adults actually come crying to me about how it's like, and I think that's the reason about in regards to why the campaign has gone so quickly. It's it's really, um, it's we have found it really um, uh, it's like almost in disbelief at the love and generosity of people. But I think it's because people are literally craving for it um, in their own, and I think COVID really came home for a lot of people in regards to there has to be a different way of living And because we thrived during COVID because we just came together as a community because that's how we live. We don't live for the greater good of an individual. We live for the greater good of our, our community.
0: So can you tell us about the fundraising campaign and what this land uh, is and what it means to your community? Yeah,
9: sure. So as I said, we, we have... Very little funding. Most of our people that work for us are part time or do a lot of volunteer work, which I find really hard. I wish that that wasn't the case, but we just keep plodding along. Um, the what are we the school we have is currently um, that we've been in use is part of its education departments, but. You know, it's, it's a, it was a temporary situation we had tried to make a permit but that wasn't what was happening. Um, we have tried to get funding from elsewhere to try and get a place because our kids really need a home and, they, and that's what they have said to us. Um, we um, we feel very scattered. We've got some roo- a room up where our office is somewhere else um, the bush tucker um, Aunty Julie does a huge amounts of bush tucker and um, that's somewhere else. We just want somewhere central and our Uncle Rick he does. He's not a big talker, he, but when he talks, it's very powerful what he says. And I never forget when he took me to this um, beautiful piece of land and how his spirit and energy changed being on there. And he was even cheeky, like, you know, I just leave you have a moment with the tree because <laughs> it was very so impactful for me. Um, but it's just, I'm like, could this be a possibility? Could this be a dream? If this because it's privately owned, if they ever wish to sell, so it's. We, it's been a really interesting journey because we, uh, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, hold lots of trauma and probably disbelief in, in, in and not, not that we don't want to hope, we hope for our kids every day, but we also hold uh, a lot of struggles as, as what we could possibly be. So it was really interesting. It was actually our allies that have come up with the crowdfunding idea because we're like, why would people want to? It was so terrible, but why would people want to um, do this? Why would they want to be um, supporting us to buy this land? And they're like, Kath, you don't get it. Well, you don't get what you're doing. You don't get how kind uh, you're doing it. So there, it was sort of, So it's been the non-indigenous allies that have set it all up. The trust campaign set up that we start having a belief in that you know that there is change hopefully happening, and that. Um, and that it is a a time where we can all walk forward together.
0: And how does the community feel about having to buy back, the Aboriginal community feel about having to buy back the land that was effectively stolen from them?
9: Yeah, that's got a toll. That's got the the whole other layers, but we, it's just where society is at the moment and we have to do it. We struggle with it. Um, I think that's part of the reason so many... um, uh, people are, are so excited and ringing up about um, it, but we just have so many layers we have the layers of people are actually wanting to support us that you know in disbelief, but we have layers of that we shouldn't especially uncle Rick because um, this is his land he's a um this, a traditional owner of this land um there's a whole heap of layers of of what what's not okay, but I suppose the only thing you can do is move forward in, in, in how we can do this. So, yeah, we've, it's been um, the allies are like, oh my gosh, because we eventually we've got a dream of building a small um, building on there that we can ha- run all our programs out of, and they're like, oh my gosh, Cass, we could even move to this next level, and I'm like, hang on, we're just dealing with the fact that we're even at this level. Like, <laughs> we're just working through that. So it's been really um interesting journey for the uh, allies to see just how huge this is but also that there is really times that you really need to honour what has happened and to pause um, and to heal and and that's a lot of what the community is doing at the moment this is Healing makes you a little bit nervous because hope is a beautiful thing, but it does open your heart and it does uh, make you really feel a little bit nervous in your heart because it, you know, it opens it up, I suppose. So we're like, oh, my gosh, we can't believe we're here. Let's just honour this. And, yes, we do want to eventually have all our play. We want to actually eventually um, do conservation land management out there too. for a lot, um, But we're like, that's the, ne- that's the dream. So we're, we're dreaming. We're hoping um, and we're just really honouring and this, this time we're in now, but also honouring that there is still a lot of pain there and there's still a lot of confusion as to why we have to do it this way. But uh, I can't see it's going to change anytime soon. So we're doing the way that we, the only way we know how, and it's been our allies that have been so supportive of that.
0: And I believe the Nandaram uh, word means uh, coming together. Oh, yeah, all together. All together. So this is a good example of the way that you're working with the community and um, the way the non-Indigenous folk are supporting you back. Yeah, and
9: because we're, I suppose, they're like, you don't, you, every day you guys go and just, Openly do things for often very little because you have a belief in wanting to change and I, and you know I say to them look our ancestors get bossy at making that change happen for our children and many times um, people what you know there's huge levels of responsibility often on Aboriginal to people when they're in um, these sort of positions and and, and with the elders because uh, and but we do it every day because if we want. Our better life for our kids we want the next generation not to have it so hard we want our kids not to have racism within the schools we want them to have it that they can feel safe in the school system can feel that the prop, true um, history about this land and its people is is there and all of the amazing beautiful stuff um, that people can learn is, is in the school system so that's why we do what we do is for our kids and that's why we wanted to buy this land back because uh, we want we want a home for our kids and the kids, our kids really need
0: it. We're going to give uh, out some details about how people can get involved with the campaign. But before we do that, um, can you just explain uh, about the tree, the special tree that's on this land and, and why that's significant?
9: Oh, uh, yeah, of course. It's, it's actually been really interesting because we've had people um, ring us up going, Kath, how did you know it's a grandmother tree? What this? And I said, that's a really good question. It's always been called that. It's like I say to people, why is the sky blue? We actually, we didn't come up with that. Um, that's The tree has been known for a long time um, and it, it, the energy is a very feminine energy but it's really, Rick and I Uncle Rick and I like, oh, we're like, I don't know, it just is. Um, so it's got the most amazing um, feeling when you walk up to the tree. Um, it's uh, it's huge, it's a ginormous, most beautiful tree and it's really hard you, on that land where, where we go, I watch people when they walk on there and it's like the people's energy changes and the shift is a really special um, feeling about the tree and the land itself. It's like there's very little trauma held in country there. Um, Unfortunately, so
0: I'm going to have to... to wind up that conversation um, yep. I would love to hear more about the tree but uh, it's important that we give out the uh, information of how people can get involved so people can go to your website a u, or they can hop on to chuffed.org forward slash project forward slash mamunya m-a-m-u-n-y-a Thanks very much, Catherine, for talking to us. You're
9: welcome. Thank you for having me on. I really
0: appreciate it. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the
5: courtyard.